Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Charlie Engel, author of The Running Man. But the book doesn't tell, at least by the title, the full story. This is a story about an individual who early in life became an alcoholic, then a crack addict, ultimately the father of two, which led him to overcome his addiction. So this isn't a book about running, but rather a tale about the human capacity for misery, for self-destruction, for rebirth, for redemption, for grace, and most importantly, love. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. Thanks for listening. Charlie, it's so great to see you again. And uh, uh, really, thanks for being with me uh, today. Um, I think uh, you've done enough of these podcasts, as have I. Um, you know, it's interesting because oftentimes when you're asked to do podcasts, you're retelling a story that you've told a thousand times. And, uh, you know, it's sort of interesting. I think it was Jimmy Page uh, he used to get really pissed off when people wanted him always to play Stairway to Heaven. And, uh, uh, you know, he'd come out on stage and he'd have all this anger about it. And what he said was, you know, <clears throat> at some point I realized uh, I was focused on what I wanted, yet who I am and what I've become is based on the needs of other people. And you know, that particular song or, you know, perhaps our stories have meant a lot to a lot of people and have the potential to mean a lot to a lot of people. So he no longer carried that sort of sense of anger about why do they keep after me about this, uh, the same song or, or, or the same story. So I'm sure you can empathize with that. Well, dude, thanks for having me on here, and I'm so happy to to be here with you. And it it's so it it's got me smiling because I I do have to have conversations with myself before I go out on stage quite often because you do a lot of public speaking too. And and you know we look, I don't write a new talk for every stage that I step onto, you know, and it usually is dependent upon how long I have, you know, if it's 15 minutes, then I tell these stories. If it's 30, I tell this and, and I, and I do try to look at it like, you know, these folks. Now the difference between me and Jimmy Page is nobody knows who I am, but everyone knows who he is. So it's, uh, I get the advantage of when I roll out my same old story to a, an audience, you know, I'm comfortable in saying that they're like, what? <laughs> like they're 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 genuinely intrigued and interested um and not not because it's one of uh you know my greatest hits but just because it's maybe something they hadn't heard before so i you know just like being here i feel like it's a gift to be able to to tell stories and and let people figure out what they might what it might mean to them no i i think you're exactly right and uh uh, yeah, uh, uh, neither you or I nor are famous as Jimmy Page, uh, 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 and probably that's a good thing. Um, but uh, speaking of storytelling, of course, that's what we're here for on some level. And um, who we are today is very much uh, a, man a manifestation of our past. And... Uh, <clears throat> I think that one of the things that always interests listeners is sort of the individual's past and how it led them to uh, where they are at today. And uh, in some ways, uh, your past is a little bit like my own. But maybe you could just share um, the history of growing up and some of uh, the things you experienced and um, I'm sure we'll have a lot of questions in between, but um, uh, how that led you to where you're at today. 
Yeah, no, thanks for that. I mean, I, I think I'll, I'll you know, in, for interest of time, I'll do the Cliff Notes version and then we'll see where it leads us. But um, I am coming to you today from Durham, North Carolina, which ironically is kind of where I started. Uh, I've been a lot of places in between, <laughs> but somehow I've ended up right here again. And uh, my parents were 18 years old, you know, when I was born in, in 61, uh, in 62 rather, I am 61 years old now. And, you know, so I kind of was a child of the 60s and I, my parents were theater people. So, and I was an only child. So I basically had very long hair and understood what um, the smell of weed was when I was like two uh, and, you know, drank my first beer at probably eight, which was not uh, condoned by any parents. There just weren't many supervising people around me. Uh, so, you know, it, as I like to say, that eight-year-old me drank that beer and, and it was sort of like alcohol planted a flag in my brain at that point and, and claimed that territory for itself. And in that informed the rest of my, you know, young life for sure. And it's not like I got up the next day and started drinking, but, um, you know, I sort of knew in that moment that alcohol was going to be a, I thought at the time, a comfort for me because it felt like a, a warm blanket wrapped around me uh, in a very insecure world. And, you know, flash forward, I, I go to the University of North Carolina and, you know, I'm superstar high school guy with good grades and dated a few cheerleaders and, uh, you know, student body president and did all these things. And I get to Carolina and like, <laughs> I'm, I'm average at best. I might even be a little below average. Like oh, the other 4,000 incoming freshmen all have the same resume. Um, but what they couldn't do like me was drink. And the drinking age was still 18 when I went to college in North Carolina. Yay for me. And, you know, I made a name for myself uh, in something that um, is it really doesn't have a, much of a future in it. And that was drinking. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll, one more little side note on that part of my life, though. I, I think I told you this when we met before, but I ended up my dad played basketball at Carolina for uh, Dean Smith back in the day. And my grandfather had been the track coach at Carolina. So I go to Carolina and I actually went out for the basketball team when I was there. And, and I made the team. I made the JV basketball team at University of North Carolina. Dean Smith was still the coach. Roy Williams was the JV coach. And a guy named Michael Jordan uh, was a freshman on the team. And uh, so for a couple of years before I, I drank and drugged my way out of college, I got to play basketball with Michael Jordan every day for a couple of years. I, I suppose that if the drugs and alcohol hadn't interfered, you would have been comparable to Michael uh, Jordan. Oh, I would have NBA, <laughs> NBA all the way, man. You know, I mean, come on. Look at, look at this. Look at this picture of like, yeah. Oh, uh, man. It was it was uh, it was the cocaine decade though, as I like to call the '80s, and so uh, it was not meant to be. Uh, sadly, so. Uh, but you know, this idea uh, about alcohol uh, being this comfort. But that being said, I think if I recall correctly, uh, there was uh, a multi generational history of alcohol abuse. Absolutely, both parents grandparents, like I was fourth generation, basically. So it, you know, I came by it honestly. And, you know, I have you and I've spoken a little bit, but in these, in these recent years, I've learned a little bit more about my trauma, and not to call it a little t trauma, but like those early years of mine being this only child, my dad went to the army when I was a year old. So my parents got divorced, and I didn't see him for five or six years. And uh, you know, I lived this sort of crazy existence. And, you know, I, I viewed myself as a survivor, like that's kind of somehow early on in my life, I gave my somebody gave me that title, I liked it. And I just figured, you know, I'm going to tough my way through all of this. And, you know, screw it, there's no excuses not to achieve and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, if you just ignore those things that happened, 
um, everything will be fine. And, you know, it's taken me almost to this age <laughs> to finally, and, and some deep therapy to understand that, you know, the impact that those first six or seven years had on me and to understand that um, even through, as you know, I've been sober a long time now. The audience wouldn't know that, but 31 years of sobriety at this point. And uh, it's taken me a long time. I don't think the journey will ever be over of discovery. And I don't spend every day trying to dig into the why because, I don't know, I'm more interested in what's next than I am in what's back there behind me. However... And, you know, I did realize that until I, if and until I can unhook as much of that baggage as possible that might be holding me back, um, you know, it's always going to play a role in my future decisions, too. Well, I think that's uh, uh, true. And I, I think there are a couple of challenges for so many people. One is... Um, Many people don't appreciate that the experiences or the baggage they picked up in childhood has an impact on every decision they make, whether it's mm. uh, relationships, whether it's job, uh, whether it's how they interact uh, with other people. And until you get that self-awareness, uh, you can't change or address the issue. Yeah. I, I'm going to tell you something, and this is crazy. I mean, it happened to me today. I had a, I had a realization today because I'm working in a, in a, in a new business. I'm consulting uh, with this business. And I, I've told you this before. I've not really ever been an employee, <laughs> not because I'm some brilliant entrepreneur. I just, generally speaking, I don't work well, all that well with structure. Like I, I like my freedom <laughs> Uh, and the unstructured nature of the way I live. And it's always kind of worked for me. But what, I've, what I have found is this: what I'm doing is something I really enjoy and I really want to do. And that fear still lives in me that I'm going to do a bad job and that I'm going to get kicked off the team or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be asked to leave. Or So like today I, I'm saying I felt it because I had a meeting today with the core team just online but after that meeting, I realized everything that I was feeling was made up in my head, at least in this current moment, my fears, my insecurities. And, and I know that that stuff is still part of me because of, uh, you know, my early life and the things that I'm still, you know, working through. So, but I actually, the funny thing is that it's a kind of group that I share it with. I'm like, you know if you kick me off the island, at least they'll be my friend. And like I, it's a, it's a family. It's my, and what I like to say is it's my chosen family. You know, we don't get to choose our first family, but we do get to choose uh, the family that we, that we want to hang out with later. Well, I think that's uh, one of the beautiful things, but uh, <clears throat> again, uh, unless you have awareness, it's hard to change and move forward. And, uh, I think you know uh, from your own addiction and uh, other experiences that uh, repeating the same mistakes uh, doesn't lead to self-awareness often. No, no. <laughs> Self-delusion, you know, yes. And, and as you know, just to even, I'll, I'll continue briefly, but I, I spent, you know, I flunked out of college and I spent 10 years chasing my ass all around the country and I was always a top sale. You know, I would move to a new city, Seattle, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Atlanta, everywhere I went, I would join a company where I would be the top salesperson. Now, these were companies that I didn't need a college degree, you know, selling fitness memberships or cars or, or whatever it might be. But addicts are absolutely the best salespeople on the planet, just as a plug for addicts. Now, recovering addicts, I should add um as a safer bet but you know because we spend so much time uh lying to ourselves and telling other people that i promise i'll never do that again and you know we're really good at being um liars <laughs> yeah liars and being sincere while we're doing sincere. it yeah. partly, partly because usually when i said i promise i'll never do that i actually meant it in that moment the problem was i couldn't I couldn't maintain it, you know, after the fact. But finally, when I was, you know, went to rehab, I went to AA, I went to church, I found a shaman, like, 
if I could have gotten a witch doctor to cast a spell, I think I would have done that. Um, you know, and as I like to say, nothing worked <laughs> because I was still in that phase where I wanted something to force me to change. Like I, I wanted to be, I wanted to be given no choice. Whereas I, you know, left to my own choices, I was still going to choose the drink or the drug eventually. And the birth of my first son kind of changed all that. Well, let's go back to, uh, to college. Um, I, I just wanted you to share with the audience what your nickname was in college. <laughs> what was it? Uh, what was it? Black Hole? Oh, I, that's right. Thank you. Oh, my God. Yes. And I was, yeah, they called me the Black Hole because basically with, in basketball, when the ball came to me, it never came back out. And I was, I never met a shot I didn't like. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, what a great reminder. I've I've had more than a few nicknames in my life, and that was that was uh, maybe uh, the best. Well, we'll get to the uh, actually probably the one that probably sticks with you uh, uh, more. Yeah. Uh, the uh, so you mentioned the alcohol, but uh, how did you transition to uh, uh, cocaine, crack cocaine, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, look, man, seriously, at, at college, cocaine was everywhere. I mean, this is 1981, 82, 83. And it was, I mean, I think it's still kind of everywhere. But at that point, I don't know if it was Miami Vice television show. I don't know if it, I don't know what it was, but, you know, powder cocaine was everywhere and on every campus. And, you know, a lot of people had, you know, issues. The first time I really knew I had an issue was, because it was so ubiquitous, like I didn't even get that it was illegal. Like I'm, I'm not stupid, but it just seemed impossible that it was even something illegal. But the first time I knew I had a real issue was big party. I was in a fraternity, of course, just to add fuel to the fire because that'll help me. Um, <laughs> I uh, and and you know there had been a big party, you know, one night every night and. Me and, you know, 10 of my closest friends, you know, split a pretty significant amount of, of coke. And, you know, three o'clock in the morning, four o'clock in the morning, these guys are all going to bed. Like they got to, you know, they're going to go to class the next day. Like that just didn't even at that point occur to me that I would stop. Like there was, and I can say to you straight faced right now, you know, there was never one time ever in my roughly 10 years of cocaine and crack use that I quit while there was still drugs available in whatever form. Like if there was still something available, I kept doing it until I was done or until it was done or, you know, or you couldn't it afford it anymore. Well, well, that's what I, yeah. Sometimes I just couldn't <laughs> buy anymore, yeah. you know, and, and gosh, it was so, it was so insane, but I, I can remember, you know, the, it hit my brain uh, I talk about it in my book. And the, fir the first time I ever did coke, it, it actually was... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, let's let's plug your book right now, uh, since oh, I yeah. brought that up. Yeah, well, that's my other Rick nickname, right? But we'll get to where it came from later. But Running Man is the name of the book. And and um, it, it's funny, you and I were talking not long ago, and I was, I was saying, because the book's been out for several years, but one interesting thing that's happened is, you know, usually the hardcover goes out of print pretty quickly. That's normal for kind of normal people, unless you're James Patterson <laughs> or somebody, um, you know, and the, so the, um, the paperback's still, you know, out there and very available. Well, what's happened is I sell 30 times more audio books uh, than anything else these days. And Audible has become a, a big deal. So, um, but yeah, you know, I, I, gosh. Cocaine just did this thing in my brain that made me the smartest person on the planet because that's sort of what the what the drug does. I don't know if it actually makes you smart, but it certainly makes you think you're smart. And I don't know of any other drug that does it the way cocaine does it. Well, you know, I think uh, you alluded uh, in the past to, in addition to that feeling, though, it made you feel as if you were alive in this moment, not dealing with issues of the past or, you know, potentially where the future might lead you. Yeah, no, that's 
extremely accurate. And, you know, and everything was possible. I mean, I think that is the, I, I hate to term it beauty of the drug, but, you know, at the time when there is that instant, that those few minutes of bliss that come from the drug, what it's telling you is that there are infinite possibilities. And everything else in my life told me that all I'd done is fuck things up to that point. <laughs> and in that moment, I had an opportunity to feel like everything was possible. And that's not how the rest of my life felt. Well, it's yeah. I, I mean, if you the rest of your life is pretty shitty, uh, uh, being in a place where you feel bliss and in the moment and anything's possible certainly uh, is an attractive place to be. Well, you're the brain. You know, you know more than me what actually is was happening in my brain at that time uh, with your brain expertise. But I, I, all I know is. Once I started, and then years later, when I traveled a lot, and I, it's not like I was some uh, rich guy buying, uh, you know, ounces of powder cocaine, but crack you could buy on any street corner in this country, anywhere. And I learned how, you know, to go into a new city and ask the right questions and within 30 minutes find you know the neighborhood that I should that I should avoid and that's the one of course but, that I would go directly to I, I would even say like just so I can be sure to avoid it how do I get there and <laughs> you know and I mean I'm, I'm serious and and I would go and you know I I was savvy at that point so I never worried about safety I never People have asked from time to time, like, weren't you scared to go into those neighborhoods, whatever that meant? And I'm like, I was way more scared of not having access to, to drugs than I was uh, any bodily harm that might come to me, you know, in those neighborhoods. I mean, generally, if you were a good customer, nobody wanted to mess with you anyway. Yeah, and you were a very good customer. I was. I was. <laughs> I knew my way around. They they saw me coming, but... Um, you know, but that couldn't last, you know, it, 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 thankfully it couldn't last. And a lot of people in my life tried to make me quit. I was married by that point. Um, my first son, you know, finally was born when I was 29 and, uh, and you've heard me tell this before, but I thought, you know, his birth, just his arrival on this planet was going to stop me because I thought surely I was a decent human being and that any decent human being ought to be able to stop for their family. And <laughs> now I know what a absolutely naive and idiotic, you know, plan of action that was because it doesn't work that way. You know, you can't quit for anybody else. And, you know, the, the final binge was uh, at least up to this point, I'll knock on some wood here. Uh, you know, was in Wichita, Kansas, where I was working all the way back in 1992. And, you know, that six day binge ended uh, with me sitting on the ground and uh, watching the police search my car and it had bullet holes in it. And they're finding, you know, crack pipes and, and drugs and alcohol and everything else in the in the car. And, and it was that pivotal moment where I basically if, if I had any, um, uh, certainly not a religious person, but spiritual enough that this this like phrase hit me in the head, and it was no, it was simply nobody's coming to save you, <laughs> and it was the first recognition that this was an opportunity, not a tragedy, and that you know if I would just simply proclaim that I was ready to be done with this the the universe would absolutely conspire to help me get past this. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the universe. Uh, and of course, a lot of people look for something outside of themselves to uh, make magic happen. But I think you'll acknowledge that it, was, it wasn't the universe at all. It was you yourself. And in some ways you had, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but you had sort of abrogated uh, all of your responsibility out, to, out there and with some belief that, well, if this happens, I'll quit. If my wife gets mad at me enough, I'll quit. If my child's born, I'll quit. Versus finally saying, nothing is going to save me. <laughs> and uh, it's yeah. all on my shoulders and I have to accept that reality. 
No, it's beautifully said. And I mean, and that's what needed to happen. And unfortunately, not to, uh, not to go too far off track here, but unfortunately what's happening these days with a lot of the most prevalent drugs, things like fentanyl and trank and some of the most toxic drugs that are on the streets these days, is you don't have the opportunity to ramp up into your addiction. Like the first time you do it may very well be the time that kills you. And that generally wasn't the case with like cocaine or even crack, you know, not that it couldn't happen, but it didn't happen that often. So I sort of had the opportunity, (laughs) which is not one that I I wanted, but I I, I took to evolve in my addiction and allow myself many, many mistakes and hundreds of times, literally, where I said to myself, you know, what the F is wrong with you? Like, you've got to stop this. And then the next day comes around and, you know, once again, I'm I'm just ready to go again. And, uh, you know, and for me, I knew that it was life or death. And, and I, you know, I did. I wanted to live. And I, I, I'll tell you, I went to so many AA meetings in the years from me being like 24 years old to 29. And <laughs> I kid you not, first AA meetings I went to, I thought I was in the wrong place. Like I, I, I stepped in and I'm like, I'm looking around thinking, these people have actually quit drinking. I'm really not here to quit drinking. I'm here to manage my drinking. It's like I, I clearly didn't get the memo as to what it was about. And uh, the joke I even told back then, because, you know, we, we make fun of things we can't control. I would say, you know, I, I really want to control my drinking because it's messing up my drug use. And it's a very expensive habit. And finally, at 29 years old, I stepped into an AA meeting and I sat there and I listened for the first time. I really just listened. And I got up the next day and put on my running shoes, as you well know. And uh, I went for a two mile, awful, painful run uh, that day. Uh, But I actually did those two things. I went to a meeting and I, and I went for a run every day for three straight years without missing one single day. And I just, I just, I re-engineered my life. And I said, these are the two things I can count on doing every single day. And every day I do them, my life gets better. Doesn't mean all the other frigging chaos that I had created and I was still just a person living and having to work and I've got kids and I've got a marriage and I got everything else. But like if I did those two things every day, all of the rest of it went better <laughs> than it would have. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Well, let me ask you a question, though, because you do mention running and running has been an integral part of your life. But you already uh, recognized that you had this unique characteristic or ability uh, to, I don't know if the words persist beyond the pain or to run. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that was a genetic component and that allowed you to be tenacious and go beyond your pain and continue to run? Or uh, was it just a habit that you developed and then the other secondary question is, did you exchange one addiction for another? No, I mean, it's a great question and one I, I still ask myself occasionally. And um, early in my sobriety, if I ever got that question, I, I was a little sensitive about it. And I, and I remember saying to this one guy in an audience, I was probably, you know, seven or eight years sober. And he asked me, you know, see... Well, he stated, it seems like he just changed one addiction for the other. He did not put it in question form. Uh, uh, So clearly he hadn't watched Jeopardy. Um, But, you know, he's like, it looks like he just switched. And I I said, look, man, I, I have never sold my car to enter a marathon. But I damn sure did that to buy crack and to do other things. So I'm, I'm pretty sure maybe this is addictive behavior, but I'm pretty sure this is better than what I used to do. And, and look, I, I think that if I'm being really in my most honest moment uh, here, there was a part of running that was good uh, for me because I wanted to punish myself. And physical punishment 
was a, you know, you can get there. Anybody that's ever run knows you can, you can make yourself hurt through running probably like nothing else that you can do out there. No other physical sport can bring that sort of misery and pain the way running can if you're, you know, working at it hard enough. And I felt at that, at that early stage, I still felt like I deserved that pain. But I also, I also knew, and this is so much your, your territory, I think, I understood the power of suffering. And I understood that if I challenged myself to a really hard physical thing, that physical thing was going to end. I, I knew instinctively, like it wasn't as long as a marathon or even a hundred miles might seem like it takes, it's going to end. And I'm doing it by choice. I can always quit. Nobody's holding a gun to my head saying, you know, uh, go run this hundred miler. And the lessons that I learned during those years of running, and, and I like to say, I mean, running saved my life. It really did. And then running actually gave me a life beyond that. It allowed me to continue to explore inward. It allowed me to explore the world. I mean, I've been, you know, I've run across more than 40 countries. I'm, I've gotten a chance to meet cultures and people and see things that nobody else gets to see from the soles of my feet. And so the question of addiction, here's what I would say too. everybody listening to this, you included, uh, you know, has an obsession issue. <laughs> like you don't actually get to be good at something without having at least periods of, of obsession where like it's the first thing that pops into your head when your eyes open in the morning. And it's the last thing you're thinking about. Sometimes we get obsessed with people, relationships, jobs, whatever, hopefully not politics, even though that happens too often, but like that's the way we're built. We get obsessed with things and you, to get mastery, you kind of got to turn yourself over to that obsession sometimes. And that's what I did with running. I just said, I'm going to keep doing this until I figure out why I'm doing it, what it's doing for me, where it's going to take me. And, you know, and, and that's what I did. And I ended up, you know, being, you know, really the top ultra distance runner in the world for a handful of years, um, at least by some rankings. And, you know, and then I began to, as you know, I began to look for longer and longer. I, I, I did hundred milers and then I'm like, oh, I'm going to run across the Gobi desert and I'm going to run across the Atacama desert and the, the jungles of Vietnam and Borneo and Fiji and you know, there's no money in this. There's no, <laughs> there's no, there's no reason to do it other than to see if I could do it. So I had my career on one side, which had actually blossomed. And then I had my running on the other side. And I just kept wanting to see just how far I could go. Well, I think <clears throat> uh, I, I would imagine that uh, there's this thing called the flow state. And once you're in the mm. flow state, uh, oftentimes you're not you're in a different place. You're not feeling that moment to moment pain. You it's there, but there's this unique ability to ignore it because uh, that's not what you're focused on. Your head is not there, and uh, so I think uh, the gift uh, is being able to get into that flow state. And of course, I'm sure. Uh, you know that in those states, you have a significant release of endorphin, which in and of itself is a painkiller, which uh, allows you to go on. The key is to get to the point where you can reach that flow state, I, I, I think, and know that in some ways, that's an incredible gift. Uh, in fact, it's, and maybe you can tell me if I'm correct or incorrect, but in some ways, it's like a mystical, spiritual, religious experience, I think. I mean, you nailed it. And I, I, I can't even tell you how many times I got into a state of euphoria, hallucinations, uh, you know, like totally gone from my body 100%. And, but to be clear, I never ran a 100 miler in my life that I didn't reach a point at some place in that race that I wanted to quit desperately. <laughs> and I think that that's a, you know, it's an important point that what I say to people is I don't actually run for the euphoria or those things. Those are really nice 
benefits. But what I really run for is that moment when I can't possibly go on because that's the most useful part of the run. Because the goal is then to figure out a way to get past that moment. And, it, and it's really, I think you and I have talked about this before, but it's my belief with addiction recovery, like relapse prevention, with relationships, with jobs, you know, we all go through these tough moments. And th- those are the moments when we want to quit or we want to relapse or we want to make the, the bad decision, probably, that we might make again, we might make it later. But in that moment, what we're doing actually is we're, we're taking our feelings in that moment and projecting them out for all time. We're assuming that our marriage is always going to feel this terrible way it might after a bad argument. I'm assuming when I'm running 100 miles that if I'm at 62 miles and I've still got 38 miles to go and I feel like I can't possibly go on, I feel terrible, I, I'm demoralized, I think I'm going to feel that pain for 38 more miles and that makes it really hard to go on. What repetitive you know, uh, use has, has allowed me to understand through the years is that it's not the way it is. If my pain's at a 10 during a, a, a run, if I eat something, if I drink something, if maybe I slow down and walk for 10 minutes or 15 minutes, every single time, that it doesn't solve the problem. I'm still running 100 miles and it hurts. But it takes that 10, from, it takes that 10 to an 8 and suddenly I'm able to keep going. And it's I think tolerable. that that's the key. Yeah, we're really just getting through hard moments in our life. We're not almost all, I, I, I never know anybody that doesn't go to bed at night after the worst day of their lives. And I can't say that it always happens, but almost all the time, you're going to wake up the next morning, even if you just got a few hours of sleep and you're going to feel better. You're going to see the problems of the previous day differently. And, you know, and I think that that's, it's the thing I try to teach young audience that is that I speak to because they you know like we all are when we're young you know we make impetuous decisions in the moment and you know we quit the job we leave the relationship we we leave those things and sometimes we just need to let that moment pass by well charlie i would suggest you it's not if you're just young you make impetuous <laughs> yeah. decisions <laughs> yeah yeah that's true uh, <clears throat> Well, one of the things I just wanted to mention, uh, which you hit upon, is uh, unfortunately for some people, they have this sense that the pain and suffering they're experiencing is not going to end. And I think uh, that leads a lot of people very much off track, sometimes obviously to the point of potentially uh, suicide. But what is the truth is that in almost every situation— uh, with time, uh, actually, uh, and whether it's in the case of running and you get something to drink or eat and your pain diminishes, the situation indeed uh, uh, will pass. And I think it's just accepting this reality. I think the converse to this also, though, is that one of the things that I think <clears throat> people have a tendency to chase after is to always receive accolades, uh, and that really or that leads to craving and uh, uh, attachment. And the reality is, as much as it feels great, let's say to run a hundred miles or to win a race or to climb a mountain, at the end of the day, that experience in and of itself is transitory. And uh, this idea of having. Um, evenness of temperament or equanimity. And that's not to say you don't enjoy the up times or you don't try to avoid the down times. But the fact of the matter is, uh, with this idea of understanding um, the reality of both of those extremes allows you to look at the world through this uh, idea of uh, it's all transitory. Wow, you said that so well. So well, I, I know, I, I know, I know, I know, Charlie. I did. I can't wait to go back and listen to this. <laughs> I'm writing that down, and I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm using. Put that. it in your oh. put it in your next book. Speaking exactly. of next books, exactly. uh, are, are you working on? Did you tell me you're working on another book? Yeah, I'm working on another one. You know, there's always uh, yeah, and I like to exercise that writing muscle. It's um, 
it's the most honest uh, muscle I have. You know, it's, and I know you know this, there's something about, first of all, it's awful. I'd rather run a hundred miles than write five pages for my next book because it's just, it's the most gut-wrenching process, you know, ever. And occasionally you do get into that flow state you mentioned, but I'll be damned. It's, it's way more elusive in writing for me than it is in running. Um, Maybe partially because I'm not, you know, I'm not a novelist. You know, I'm I'm writing about my own experiences or my own journey through this life, uh, and and so it's always deeply personal. I'm not making stuff up. I'm I'm trying to memorialize it. I think what I've gotten really good at in the last few years uh, is doing it right away uh, because it's. Even out on a big adventure, for example, it's it's so elusive to to remember. We think we're going to remember the pain. We think we're going to remember the the colors, the smells, the environment, the people we encountered, like because they seemed so impactful in that moment. But man, they leak away so fast. So you know, I really focus hard on trying to uh, zero in on those moments. Do voice recordings you know, shoot video, um, not for social media, just for posterity. Well, that's a good idea. I'm, I'm not as uh, disciplined as you, obviously. Uh, the, uh, uh, so let's transition over to, uh, uh, have people understand how you got your more recent nickname, which has stuck with you. And what's interesting, <laughs> if I recall correctly, is that you ended up going to prison but it wasn't because of drug or alcohol abuse. Yeah, I, irony in the truest form there. So, you know, I, I should, I, not that I should have, you know, gone to prison for, you know, drugs or alcohol or whatever, but I certainly could have. Um, and just to fill in one gap, super fast, you know, you know this about me, but ultimately I ended up um, at about 15 years sober, I was the senior producer for a TV show called Extreme Makeover Home Edition. I was a really top runner in the world. I, I got introduced to Matt Damon. We partnered on a project that had me running all the way across the Sahara Desert. So I became you know, basically the first person with a couple of teammates of mine to run uh, all the way from Senegal to the Red Sea, about 5,000 miles. Um, I ran two marathons a day, every single day for about, uh, 111 consecutive days. So, um, as I like to say, who knew Africa was that big? Uh, I, I should have checked the maps more closely. Um, but you know, this, this adventure really kind of put me on the map and, and Matt and I created a clean water nonprofit that today is known as water.org. It's one of the bigger ones in the world. And, uh, you know, and so this journey got me a little bit of notoriety, but it also helped me accomplish some things that uh, I am very proud of. It also made me a target for an IRS agent in Greensboro, North Carolina, <laughs> who decided that he wanted to dig into how a runner could afford to run across the Sahara Desert. Um, and as I like to say, apparently he'd never heard of um, Matt Damon, but, um, you know, without belaboring how it happened because it's fairly pointless, but it was front page of the New York Times. It's, all those articles are on my website. It's all in my book, whatever. So if somebody wants to know the details, dig in. But I became, I basically became the first person and only person at the time in the United States to be charged with overstating my income on a home loan application. And for that, I could be sentenced to 20 years in, in federal prison. And this was in 2010, so we were at a particular time in the country that uh, uh, people were looking, the government was looking for people to blame for the mortgage crisis, um, which they should have been staring in the, in the mirror if they wanted to know who to blame. But that aside, uh, you know, I was actually found not guilty of those charges, but through a weird quirk in the system, I got charged with mail fraud and was found guilty of mail fraud. Um, and sentenced to 21 months in federal prison in Beckley, West Virginia. And uh, people tend to think that cancel culture is this like new conversation of the last few years. Uh, but, you know, for me in 2010, the day that I was arrested and charged, you know, I, I uh, 
I lost probably a million dollars in speaking gigs. I lost, uh, you know, every sponsor partner that I had. I was booted off the board of my own nonprofits. Um, you know, everything went away the day after I was arrested, not convicted, <laughs> arrested because, you know, there's just, that's the way the world works. And I'm not even complaining about it because it's just a reality. It's not a surprise. Um, but as you know, it began this, this crazy journey, uh, a really amazing, powerful, positive journey because I showed up in prison. My kids dropped me off on Valentine's Day, 2011. And, you know, and uh, I walk in prison and I'm, I'm, I'm scared and I'm pissed off about, you know, what had been done to me because this is, you know, injustice. And it took me about a minute. <laughs> practically, to meet the first person who uh, had a 25-year sentence for, you know, a very small amount of crack cocaine, you know, an amount that I had for, you know, in my hands a hundred times. And of course, he was African-American. He was, um, didn't have legal representation back when he got convicted, public defender, just railroaded through the system. He'd had two previous charges for shoplifting and some other nonsense. And that third strike gave him over 20 years. Perspective hit me in the face. And I, I began to understand very quickly that while what happened to me could certainly be framed as unfair, unfairness is the world we live in. And it's all around us. And the choice to be happy was still mine, <laughs> even in the worst place that I could think of for myself. It was still completely up to me whether I was going to be happy in this situation. And, you know, and I chose a path to happiness, even in prison. And that path led me um, directly to, this sounds high and mighty, but uh, being of service to others. <laughs> you know, service was my way through. And, and that revolved around running also. I started running in prison. I would run in myself for four or five hours at a time if we were on lockdown. And like, it was this crazy experience. But uh, attraction rather than promotion, as I like to say, people started coming up. They thought I was nuts. They told me I was nuts which actually isn't a bad strategy in federal prison, if you ever go. <laughs> um, you know, it's if people are like, I'm not messing with that middle-aged white dude. I mean, something's really wrong with him. And, uh, you know, slowly but surely, people started coming up to me and asking me if I could help them learn how to run. And it was so empowering uh, for me to be able to give a gift that I had and, and my, uh, my first sponsor, you know, many, many years ago, you know, 31 years ago now, taught me this saying, uh, to keep it, you have to give it away. And it's this simple concept that if you're, if you're an artist or a musician or an athlete or a coach or it doesn't matter what you are, if you're not giving that to somebody without an expectation of return, like how is it that you're expressing yourself, you know, in the universe and... By the time I left um, Beckley, you know, I had a running group of 50 guys running with me every day. And I had 25 of them doing yoga, uh, like out on the softball field, which was hilarious, like three days a week. And, you know, they got me through the experience. They thought I was helping them, but that's the beauty of that kind of symbiotic relationship. You know, they were actually the ones getting me through that experience. Just, let me just make a couple comments, which to emphasize some of the things you said. Uh, I had said earlier that <clears throat> you had mentioned the universe. You are the you are the universe, and it is it has to be your decision. And just as you said, you made a choice to be happy. It wasn't you demanded the universe make you happy. You uh, felt it was unfair because things weren't the way you wanted. It doesn't matter the external environment. It matters how you see the world and perceive the world and where you fit in the world and an understanding that it is your choice uh, to be happy. I think the other point to emphasize, which is also very, very critical, is this concept of being of service. 
you know, uh, and we've talked about this, and I, I actually I, I shared my new book with you, but <clears throat> this idea of manifestation, which is it can't be about you, it can't be centered about you, uh, and that I want, I want, I want to be happy in the world, to have meaning and purpose, to live a full life, it has to be about the other. What can I give or share with the other that will improve their lives? And what uh, uh, paradoxically happens, as you also mentioned, is it benefits you. And it probably had, uh, I'm sure you feel, more of a positive effect on you than uh, what you had given away. Man. One hundred percent. I mean, it, it's weird that I've gotten to this place now because it's been, you know, over 10 years since I got out. Um, but it's weird that I've gotten to this place where I am and it happened pretty quickly, but I'm, I'm actually grateful for it. Like I wouldn't unwind it even if I could. It it taught me more uh, about life, about humility, about friendship, about love about all of the things you know that 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 you're all about um than any other circumstance that i possibly could have been put in and i I think the other thing is you know there's a so in sobriety especially like in aa there's a their a is big on acceptance and i've had this you know i've had this long winding journey through 12-step recovery and aa and i've I'm, i'm not a i'm not pro or you know, I'm not against it or for it so much as I am. There needs to be something, anything that can provide community, fellowship, like we shouldn't go through these things alone. And how you find that fellowship and community will help you get through these things. So that aside, acceptance is a big part, you know, accepting that you are an alcoholic or an addict and accepting these hard things in life. And while I always said those words, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't think I fully understood acceptance until, you know, this happened to me and, and I went to prison because look, just or unjust no longer mattered. I was going to be in prison for a year and a half and it, and I could either make myself and everyone else around me miserable because I can do that. <laughs> uh, or, you know, or I was going to choose a path, not perfect. I wasn't Mr. Sunshine every single day, but you know, I was, I was not going to choose a path of marking every day off the calendar because I watched other guys do that and how miserable they were because the only thing they lived for was getting out. I lived for being where I was. I, I went into prison actually on a, on uh, antidepressants, which not surprisingly, but as an addict, I had been told, you know, for years, this is part of your chemical makeup and whatever, and um, SSRIs and serotonin reuptake and all of this. And I'm not saying that that's, there, there's great validity. I'm not a person saying that, like, I think um, antidepressants can be very useful for a period of time. But I went in there and I actually learned uh, very quickly that I taught myself to meditate. You know, and I, I, there were books in the library and I found a book on meditation and I recognized like this was my, another part of my path through this place because the worst part of prison, people don't understand the worst part of prison. The worst part of prison is the noise. 500 men in this tiny confined area and you can hear every bodily sound, every word, every minute, every breath. 24 hours a day. And like, I think it was Sartre that said, hell is other people. Like, you know, in our normal lives, we have places we can go to have some alone time. Most of us do. There is no such thing there. So that is the hell. So if I didn't learn how to, how to like find a way to breathe and let my, let my brain disconnect, even in the midst of all that chaos, I would, I don't know, I would have made it. (laughs) <laughs> but that yeah. set that gave me that gift alone was worth it and it has stayed with me you know to this day and I'm still growing that gift <coughs> uh, that wasn't from you uh, uh, the uh, uh, one aspect which we really haven't directly focused on is this concept of self-compassion which I think oftentimes addicts, 
And people from traumatic backgrounds carry a lot of shame and they feel they're not worthy. And oftentimes they, their life is one of beating themselves up. I think you share a story. Uh, I guess you were running, was it across the desert or one of the deserts you've run across? And a cameraman said something to you. And maybe you can share that with us and how powerful that was uh, to you. Well done. You done you done your homework, or I talked about this before, because that's such a it's such an obscure part of the story, and yet it's so meaningful. I was in the Sahara Desert. I was a little over halfway through, so I'd run you know almost twenty five hundred miles at this point, and um, I hadn't. Of course, I didn't have any meetings. I was out there without getting into you know the the weeds here. You know, I was out there with a couple of like undiagnosed addicts on my support team (laughs) and you know it was it was tough it was a crazy situation and i and i was angry like every day i mean i was out there running i had this passion blah 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 anyway but i but i tried i cajoled i loved i hugged i encouraged i did all this for everyone around me and i was acknowledged for that you know fairly often but a camera guy shows up halfway through. They replaced one of the camera crews. We're not supposed to talk to the camera people because this is a documentary. And there's the old, there's what's called the fourth wall. You know, you're not technically supposed to interact with people who aren't there <laughs> or aren't supposed to be there. But this guy, one day, kind of at lunch, uh, we'd taken a little break for lunch and it was just he and I. And I... He knew I was sober and he made some comment that, you know, only 12 steppers know, you know, uh, something as cliche as one day at a time kind of a thing. And I looked at him and he's like, he sort of gave me the head nod like, yeah. And he said, look, now that now that you know that, can I ask you a question? And I'm like, yeah, go ahead. He says, I've watched you for days now and you have so much compassion for the people of Africa, the people of the Sahara, because we were, dude, we're in the midst of we're watching people die, basically. I mean, from a lack of water, lack of medical care. I mean, it's just, it's very hard to meet people who are suffering and then just keep running. It made my running feel so trivial every day. Uh, You know, I would say to them almost, I promise, you know, I'm trying to help the situation. I mean, I, I didn't really say that, but that's like, I wanted to justify why I was even out there. And this guy just looked at me and he said, he's like, but what I've watched you do is kick your own ass every day. You have absolutely no compassion for yourself. Like, what about you? And I and really, I looked at him, I'm like, what about me? <laughs> like, this is it's not about, like, I, I so didn't understand at the time, you know, what he was even saying. Because it, it had never really occurred to me how hard I was on myself and how much I demanded of me and that um, I didn't deserve compassion from myself. I mean, that is absolutely how I felt that, you know, I had, I still was making up for my past uh, shortcomings and not just in the addiction years, but everything I'd ever done up to that moment, I wasn't willing to give myself any grace or forgiveness. Not really, not, you know, I'd say the words, but not, not really doing that. And that, his remark changed everything for me. And I, and I began this quest of, of, I think, trying to have compassion for myself and recognize that if I couldn't do that, I was sort of faking it with other people. Like maybe I was doing them some good, but deep down, what it made me feel like is it as if they really got to know me. And this is even 15, 17, 18 years sober. Like if they really knew me, they wouldn't like me. And or they wouldn't, you know, they'd tell me I was full of shit and that I didn't live the same things that I was saying. And I think everybody gets a little bit of that, but it it, it forced me on a path that I'm still on today of discovery and of trying to continue to seek. I don't need answers. I just want to keep seeking the questions. (laughs) Well, speaking of questions, uh, what is, and in some ways I know the answer because we've talked about it. uh, You've sort of laid out this quest uh, from going to the lowest part to the highest part of uh, the world. 
Uh, where does that stand, and how do you think that integrates with uh, what you're trying to accomplish, where you want to be, or fundamentally who you are? No, that's such a great question, and it's such a complicated answer that I'll try to boil down. Number one, Dead Sea to Everest is what you're talking about, and it is to go literally from the lowest place on the planet to the highest point on the planet, human-powered. I've had this dream forever. It really came to me while I was in prison, and uh, it was a great metaphor for the journey that we are all on from our lowest places to our, to our highest points. Um, that expedition was supposed to start next year and it was supposed to begin in Israel. <laughs> so not, I'm not even remotely making light of that fact, but, you know, needless to say, the, the world has some other plans right now. And while we all hope things get resolved, uh, quickly and humanely, um, it's not likely to happen anytime soon. And so I switched my thinking to Jordan uh, as you and I are sitting here right this minute, uh, just this past week, there's been quite a few dust ups in Jordan. Um, and, you know, it's 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 seeming unlikely that I'm going to get uh, clearance to be able to do that. So I am on that journey. I am still trusting uh, the universe to let me keep walking this path. My body's still healthy. Um, in some ways, my focus these last years has been on, not on longevity as in adding years, but on health as in uh, really focusing on my wellness more than my fitness. Because I've been, I've been a guy who overtrained for most of my athletic career, you know, because I felt like I needed to do more and more and more. And my body has paid the price. And now I prioritize things like sleep, um, nutrition, hydration. You know, training is probably number five or six on the list. Um, I prioritize love in my life, not to be too overly woo-woo here, but my, you know, as you know, my wife is battling cancer and this has been going on for seven years now. And, you know, it's, <laughs> we've only been married 10 years and we, we have had to reshape you know, in the living room of our house, pretty much the nature of our relationship. You know, she's a, a world renowned ornithologist, a bird expert who lived in the Amazon jungle for years. And I mean, we are an adventure match made in, the, in heaven, yet we haven't been able to go do those things that we thought we would get to do. So I've had to, I've had to really together, we've had to figure out the nature of our relationship when we don't get to do the stuff together that we love to do. I'm still doing some of it, but it's different. You know, I want to do it with her. And, and it's been a great growth, um, you know, pattern for me, I think. And, and, you know, and I'm looking at a lot, I'm doing a lot of breath work. I'm, I'm meditating. I'm, you know, super interested in psychedelic therapies, especially when it comes to not just for me, but for people in the addiction and recovery world, because I don't see things heading in the right direction in that world. And something needs to change. We can't just keep doing the same thing and expecting people to get better. So, you know, my, my Dead Sea to Everest, my lowest to highest metaphor is, is being used in several different parts of my life at this point. And, you know, I'm still very excited and fired up about uh, mostly getting to see more of the world and encounter more, more people, more cultures, more food, more life out there in the world. Well, on that note, Charla, I think that's a uh, place for us to end our conversation. And to remind people in some ways uh, that's what life is, uh, uh, ever uh, changing, but with a goal of um, trying to reach our greatest potential. And whether that's from the lowest point on earth to the highest, uh, it's available to us. And I, I think that's what we can't forget. You know, oftentimes I'm sure, you know, people will look at you and go, my God, he's incredible. How can I possibly do something like that? But everybody's journey is different, and uh, all of us have aspects of ourselves that can allow us to uh, 
have a parallel journey uh, to reach that um, place where we can say, I did the best I could, and I'm happy. So thanks for being with us or being with me. And uh, your friendship is uh, uh, very valuable to me, and I appreciate it very much. And I look forward to our continued uh, conversations and hopefully hanging out together in the near future. Thank you all well, for your, listening. Your virtual book is sitting on my computer right now, and I'm super excited to get cranking, and I can't wait till it comes out this, this uh, spring. So thanks for being my friend and for giving me that chance. Okay. Well, thanks again. And uh, again, always a joy and a pleasure. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Music.